Hello, Detroit in the world. Welcome to another episode of Authentically Detroit, broadcasting live from the Audio Wave Network Studios on the Lower East Side here in the city. Yes, we're back in the studio, powered by the East Side Community Network and sponsored by none other than the Ford Foundation. Now a content partner to BruceDetroit.com. I'm Orlando Bailey. And I'm Donna Givens-Davidson. Thank you for listening in and supporting our efforts to build a platform of authentic voices for real people on the East Side of Detroit. We want you to like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast on all platforms. We drop a new episode every week, so be sure to turn on those notifications. This week, we're taking a break from our candidate series to have a conversation about real estate development in Detroit neighborhoods, not just downtown, but the neighborhoods where most of us live. Joining us today are David Alati and Andrew Cologne from Century Partners, along with their partner, Shay Whitfield from the hit HGTV show, Bargain Block. Based here in the city of Detroit, Shay, Andrew, and David, welcome to Authentically Detroit. Thank, Thank you, you so much for having us, uh, Donna and Orlando. We're Super so excited, excited to be here. I'm yes. excited to have you guys. Likewise, we got yes. a celebrity in the house. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? I told her when she she came and introduced herself to me. She says, "I'm Shay." I said, "I know you. You yeah. don't know me. And <laughs> I don't know if you can recognize me from viewing you on television. But I've watched a couple of those shows twice, and so it's really great to meet you. Thank you, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. We're happy to have you and David and Andrew. Oh, friends, Andrew Absolutely. is no stranger to the show. He's been on the show once before. Welcome back yeah i'm so excited to be back the new digs look great thank um, you it's great to be in person and it'll be the first one in person since the uh, pandemic we feel like that's gonna be in jeopardy one day <laughs> we, have been, we have been so dissatisfied with zoom and recording from zoom so we're so excited to be back here shout out to jg real authentically detroit listeners know who jg is he's our producer but he's no longer in the studio with us we fancy he's in the other room controlling everything shout out to jg man but you know, <laughs> but you know what the other thing about jg is that the auto wave audio wave network is now housed in the stoudemire wellness hub it's actually the first Love tenant it. in the hub I and so it. they've led the way. Um, we're so excited. ECN got back to work last week, and now JG is here. Um, and pretty soon, it's all going to be beautiful here, and there's going to be a community podcast network. Love we're it. calling the Detroit East Podcast Network the Deep Network. The Deep? Mm. Oh, shoot. When did you name that? When I had to write a proposal. <laughs> you know, sometimes it brings it, out your creative juices. Hits. Yeah, the East Side. But, you know, Detroit East Side, I don't know. If the, I think it may be engagement. You know how you name something, you forget Detroit what you East call Side it. Detroit East Side Engagement Network. Yeah, it's like, you know, you name your kids and forget your kids' names. like the Deep Network. You know? The Detroit East Side Podcast <laughs> Okay. Yeah, yes, it, I think it's the Detroit East Side Engagement Podcast Network. All right, so deepen. Deep. Deep. <laughs> it's we're deep. It's the deep network, and the deep network will be operated in a room next door with an end on the end of it. There will be no There's end a network. There's. A <laughs> but the deep network, you don't need. To oh, have okay. Deep end. network. Thank, 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 help a brother out. Uh, he's he's struggling. I don't know if it's in person. We got together. You know, he does not talk, act anymore. I haven't talked to people in person in so long. I'm, you know. You know that COVID brain fog is real. It is real. It's definitely real. I'm, I was in a meeting one day and they were like, what do you think, Orlando? And I went to make my point and like in the middle of me talking about whatever it was, I said, I had to stop and say, you know what? I'm sorry. I have no idea what I'm talking about. I'm sorry, Donna. Please. I'm glad, yeah, I feel you, like I'm a glad mother. you mentioned that because it's going to happen today. It happens, it happens to me all day, like every day. Like, what was I saying again? But yeah. 
What were you gonna say? You know, I felt, yeah, I, I'm so you know when you tell me that I start worrying about you. I can't even laugh. Oh, no, no, like, don't worry. No, I'm okay. That's I'm okay. not even funny. All right. All right. It's it's a beautiful day <laughs> in the city of Detroit. How does this blessed day find each of you, Donna? How you doing? I need a break. Oh, yeah. that was good. It's good. It's. I had a long weekend. I had to work on Saturday. Um, there What's with was this Saturday work stuff. I don't man. know because we're working next Saturday for Juneteenth. I'm excited about that, but. Um, um, but yeah, I mean, I worked on sat this past Saturday. I was in a conference with people in Calcutta, India, and in Glasgow, um, Scotland, and they decided that the best time for everybody would be seven a.m. for me. How you just like going graze by that you were in a conference in Scotland and <laughs> in India, big time? You know, and I hope Professor they listen Gibbons. to this. It was the Arca Fringe conference, and um, the Leanne Bauer from mm-hmm. Arca Fringe is a listener to our show. So Leanne, if you're listening, what's up? That's amazing. And so she says, listen, I listen to your show all of the time and I thought you might have something to add to this. So um, that is so enormously um, flattering to hear that somebody in Scotland actually thinks that what we do is relevant. And so I did tell them early morning, I'm sorry, Leanne, for calling you out. It was my idea. I said early morning <laughs> to try to make everybody happy. 7 a.m. for me, but it did sort of start off a long weekend. My son is in town um, for the first time in a year and a half. Wow. And we had my sister's birthday party on Sunday that I helped organize. And nice. so it was a really, really busy weekend. Uh, my aunt popped in from Hawaii. Oh, we didn't wow. even know she was going to be in town. So fancy. Yeah, 89 years old, and she looks like she's almost 80. And flying. And flying and living by herself in Mexico. In Mexico. And let's let's just be clear. She's from Detroit. She's not Mexican, okay? (laughs) (laughs) She's in a foreign country. (laughs) That's amazing. Wow. So how was your weekend? Uh, My weekend was good. So uh, I, I had to do a little bit of work. I worked on Sunday. I hosted in partnership with the Michigan Chronicle and Huntington Bank, the Students Wired for Achievement and Greatness Awards, a.k.a. the SWAG Awards. Huntington Bank gave $100,000 away in scholarships to 15 Detroit youth, and they also honored five educators who are doing innovative things in and outside of the classroom. And so I did that on Sunday. So I worked a little bit, not a little bit, a whole lot. That was 27 pages worth of script and a long event. But it was it was pretty cool. And it was also my girlfriend's birthday weekend. And so I hung out with baby. That's what I call her. I hung out with baby all weekend and uh-huh. made sure her birthday was special. The New Orlando had got a baby I and got everything. Baby, you know what I'm <laughs> she she's so great. And so she deserved she deserved everything. And so we uh we hung out uh Saturday and after the event on Sunday, we hung out again with her family. So Saturday was the solo date, Sunday was the family date. So happy oh. birthday, babe. Oh. Yeah. All right, what about y'all? How y'all doing? Shay, how you doing? I'm doing pretty good. My weekend was good. Sold a couple of houses. Attended a a my husband's cousin's son's open house. Your sister-in-law, baby sister cousin yes. Tracy. <laughs> so that was fun. And that's about it. Good. David, how was your weekend? It was good. It was good. Actually, uh, Angel and I got to hang out at the market. How fun! Oh, fun! Oh, nice. Saturday, I think it was the first time really hanging out with other people. Yeah, and people, people are people, people in at Easter people Market. Are, people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that was good though. I, I just uh, kind of missed that energy. Just seeing people, young people, old people. It was very diverse. I think slice of Detroit. It's happy, happy, ready to have a good time, but happy to be outside. Really 
Yeah. Next time you're in Eastern Market, check out Flavorful Creations and Shed Five. Okay. Amazing vendor. I was at the Eastern Market last week on Thursday for Bert's Place. Are they back doing live events and jazz and stuff? Outdoors, outdoors. And Jay Lee has a new restaurant. It is the Motown Bistro. I've been there. So, yes, I had my fried lobster. I did. It was delicious. (laughs) And we got it. It was really a great time outside. Um, And an amazing crowd. Um, So, yeah, next time I'm just going to bring my lawn chair. Just bring a lawn chair because everybody's there. But um, beautiful outside and the energy was just something i missed i know yeah. andrew how's your again it was great i uh didn't do nearly as much as donna so i feel bad there <laughs> i uh, did go to the grand prix on a saturday wow. for the first Fancy. time out in bell isle so that was nice and uh went to eastern market that night i think sunday i had chocolate cake Ooh. that was a really big moment for me <laughs> during the weekend <laughs> so yeah no it was a relaxed weekend i did some writing but mainly i hung out I love it. Can't wait to catch up with you guys. It's time for Fresh Off the Press, news that we are thinking about. You have pieces that you want discussed on Authentically Detroit. You can hit us up on our socials at Authentically Detroit on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Or you can email us at AuthenticallyDetroit at gmail.com. And y'all been using that inbox. Thanks for all of the notes, y'all. Uh, Donna, Fresh Off the Press. Detroit Public Schools f- found a way to attract teachers. Pay them more. <laughs> I'm sorry for laughing. It was like, who knew? Who knew you, that was if the, you pay people more, they might come to work for you. <laughs> Ron French is reporting in partnership with um, Bridge Detroit. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, yeah, they decided um, to pay teachers more, I think. Um, in 2017, teachers were starting wages of $38,000, and they increased that by, I think they said, 33% to $51,000 a year mm-hmm. right out of college. And that outperforms most school districts in the nation or many school districts in the nation and really makes Detroit teachers competitive with some suburban districts, mm-hmm. which is a great thing, right? You're going into schools that have fewer resources, with sometimes larger class sizes and buildings that are sometimes a little bit less um, well-prepared and students who sometimes have present with a lot of struggles. And then you pay people less. Mm-hmm. So I think it makes sense. They paid them, you know, not combat pay, but hardship pay or something like that for coming to work Com- during... <laughs> we did have to come back. We were in yeah, a whole listen, Pantene Pro-V. During the pandemic, they paid them to come back. And so now Detroit... Um, has about 40 openings. They re- received 1,000 applications for, for 100 40 openings. Wow. For 150 spaces, and they're still filling 40 openings. You know, a few years ago, they had hundreds. And so, um, hats off to Detroit Public Schools, the leadership. You know, you don't always have to agree with folks, but the leadership has done a good job of really standing up and saying teachers deserve to be paid. We made teaching a very unattractive profession for years. Teachers got blamed if kids did not do well in school. Teachers got blamed. And, you know, test scores don't really even reflect whether or not you're doing well in school is how well you do on a test. And the idea that poor kids, kids low income, kids who are homeless or semi-homeless and um, dealing with a lot of trauma for all kinds of reasons are going to get the exact same test scores as privileged kids is an insult because Structural racism means that certain kids are living in constant struggle. Oh, they? And you cannot fix that with a teacher. If mm-hmm. they're worried about equal outcomes, why don't we invest equal resources so that kids don't have to start school um, behind? That kids don't have to start school not having a place to lay their head every night or with parents not sure how they're going to feed them. 
But because our society is so equal and a lot of that is racialized, what ends up happening is certain kids don't do as well as others. And if you punish teachers for teaching them by saying that if you're here, um, then the test scores have to equal other places, then you end up, you know, back in the day, this is, I'm on my soapbox, but mm -hmm. back in the day, there used to be discrimination against black people. You can't do that anymore. So now we have these um, scores that serve as a proxy for race. Mm -hmm. Test scores are a proxy for race. So we're not, not investing in your school because you're black. It's because you're your not performing well, you know. Or to a certain extent, credit scores are a proxy for race because credit scores are not necessarily based on income, willingness to pay back, character, any of that. A lot of that is based on things beyond the control of the person who is, you know, part of a consumer credit system. Um, I there was a woman I talked to not too long ago who applied for a credit card. It was a department store credit card, and she was denied because she was told by this credit card company that her house did not appraise high enough for her to receive consumer credit. Yes, redlining, and she said, "Isn't that redlining?" And we're talking about not somebody who doesn't know what she's talking about—a highly educated person who moved to Detroit from another community and was shocked to find out <laughs> that living in this home made her ineligible for certain types of credit. Um, like one at a department store. That's like one at a department store. So when I look at this, I think, you know what, let's stop punishing teachers or teaching kids who have the greatest need. Detroit public schools used to have so much upper mobility for kids because we didn't look at where they came from. We looked at just investing in them where they were. And I hope we get back to that. Yeah. Yeah. And, it, you know, it's it's interesting. You know, I think the pandemic has exacerbated a lot of uh, situations, especially with teachers having to teach throughout a whole panoramic. And, you know, it. I'm wondering, though, um, how is it just uh, the is the teacher shortage just a symptom of the pandemic? Is it just a symptom of pay? Because Detroit teachers had to teach through a pandemic, too. And, you know, starting at fifty thousand dollars is, you know, miles ahead of where we've been. But I know other districts that still start off with more. Why, why is there a teacher shortage? There's a teacher shortage because people left the profession. Um, we deprofessionalized teaching, mm -hmm. you know, and I'm not trying to insult anybody who may know these programs. But when you look at Teach for America mm -hmm. and you look at a teacher who went through teacher college, mm -hmm. if I go through teacher college for four years and mm -hmm. you go through Teach of America and you have six weeks of training or whatever, and we get start teaching inside of a school making the same amount of money, why would I ever go to teacher college? And the problem is the people who go through Teach of America are just doing that to try to figure out a way to their next post for the most part. They're not staying in teaching. So they go to teaching. It's difficult. The first three years are always hardest. And they leave and they go back to the career that they always wanted. Mm -hmm. Meaning that um, when people go to teachers' colleges, because I want to be a teacher. Mm -hmm. And so we've got to incentivize that again. Um, there's low enrollment in almost every teaching college in America right now. And if we incentivize teaching, if we have bonuses, if we decide that teachers need to earn a living wage, not just a living wage, but a professional wage, it's a professional Legit. job. If you don't think teaching is hard, parents, if you don't think teaching is hard, think about what you had to go through teaching your one <laughs> child during this pandemic, okay? Oh, yeah. <laughs> teaching is hard, oh, and I think yeah. we're beginning to recognize that and value them. You know, life tends to go through ups and downs. I think we're on an upswing where we're recognizing the value of teachers to our um, community. So I hope so. Yeah, yeah, I hope so, too. I um, When I was in college, Teach for America, they were trying to pitch me. They were recruiting. I actually made that exact same argument to Donna. And the irony was they rejected someone who was a sorority sister of mine 
who went on to become a New York teaching fellow and now has taught for like 20 years and they accepted a bunch of people who only just used it as a temporary bridge and it's almost like a calling card that they use to then apply for graduate programs in the future. So I didn't do Teach for America because I didn't really, I could see through their principles weren't really in line with what they were saying that they were going for. And I taught for a little bit as a writer. I taught uh, elementary school. Wow, uh, I did not know that. Wow. Yeah, I taught, and I will always say there's a special place in heaven for kindergarten teachers. The hardest working mm-hmm. people in the economy are elementary school mm-hmm. teachers because they have to pay attention 100% of the time. Mm-hmm. And they, they can never release their attention. If you're a businessman, even if you're running a high-powered billion-dollar business, there's a lot of stress, but you can just check out it sometimes. and just yeah. you Actually, you have to. <laughs> but as a teacher, you absolutely cannot check out at all, especially when it's a kindergarten teacher. So for sure, I think that's a great start, mm-hmm. um, paying those teachers more. And, you know, like folks within, you know, teachers who went to teacher college and folks within, you know, the administrations, uh, various schools, they resent TFA. Like they, For good reason. They, they actually <laughs> resent it. I hear so many horror stories about it. It's crazy. Can I just say one more thing? Yeah. Education policy should be influenced by educators. Period. Medical policy should be, you know, influenced by people who study medicine. But instead, what we've done is said, well, since you are a teacher, you're an educator, you are self-interested. So we're not interested in hearing what you have to say. And I know a little bit about this because I actually worked in schools. My master's is in education leadership, so I'm not just speaking off the top of my head. I worked in charter schools. I actually had a charter school management company um, Mm -hmm. that was trying to, you know, um, take over schools that were failing and fix them. And so I worked with, you know, a PhD, an educate, a PhD educator and tried to say, let's level set this and fix this. And it was hard, 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 hard work. I'll never forget one day a kid came to school, walked up to the principal, a really wonderful man, and said, my father was shot and killed on the porch this morning. And he walked into school. Now, why he was at school that day, I have no idea. Mm. But, you know, he didn't have a lot of family resources to take care of him and, you know, um, low-income kids are not allowed to grieve like other kids are. Mm-hmm. And so we had a really wonderful principal who hugged him, and he was a great guy. But I just imagine if he went into the classroom that day, he was probably acting up. Mm-hmm. And then we say he's a problem child. Mm-hmm. We have so many kids who witness and experience all kinds of crisis trauma. situations. The trauma is real. There's um, actually a lot of studies on um, the fact that a lot of our kids have um, post-traumatic st- stress disorder, um, they have toxic stress syndrome and other stress ailments resulting from the consequences of living in very stressful, low-income communities. Poverty is violence. Oh, and so people are living violent lives where, you know, if I don't know where I'm going to, if, if we don't live the same place every day, <laughs> that impacts your well-being. So anyway, I say that to say it's hard work. I say that to say we need to really honor educators and understand that education is a profession. It is not a job, and it's not something you can just pick up because you love kids or you went to school. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Fresh off the press, Detroit may step up its voice in national reparations movement. Louis Aguilar is reporting from British Detroit. So we got a little bit of breaking news today. The Detroit City Council passed a resolution to uh, establish, uh, you know, a, a, some sort of a committee or task force to look at 
uh, reparations policy in the city of Detroit. It was brought forth by City Council President Pro Tem Mary Sheffield, who had been working with a coalition of folks that include people we know like uh, 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 Chase Cantrell and, and Lauren Hood, uh, uh, the professor out of the Damon J. Keefe Center for Civil Rights, Peter Hammer. Peter, Pete Hammer, yes, and and some more fo- folks have been, you know, working on this and studying other uh, legislation in other cities uh, to see, you know, what kind of uh, what what can we do here. This has been a long time coming, uh, right? Uh, when we talk about healing, when we talk about reparative policy, it's been a fight in Detroit, believe it or not. And Donna, you know, has you know so much history. <laughs> well, you know, it's one of four initiatives I know yeah. about. And actually, there, um, the Charles Wright Museum has a reparations study committee that I joined. And then I realized they were meeting on Tuesday evening, so I had to decline. They're actually meeting tonight. Um, and Lauren's leading that. Lauren Hood is leading that, um, as, as well as some other leaders in the community. Um, there's um, Keith Williams is trying to put um, from the Michigan um, Democratic Black, Party. Democratic Party Black, Black Caucus. Caucus is trying to put a reparations bill on the ballot in August. And um, that's receiving a lot of pushback because he's saying there will be a reparations committee appointed by the uh, mayor with consent of the council. And so he's being accused of being a Duganite, which he says I'm not, or else working with Wendell Anthony. And there's another group that I'm not going to name because they will call me a sellout if I bring out who they are because I get these text messages all of the time. Hope they're listening. Um, I didn't name you, that is meeting to try to put an initiative on the ballot in November to stop the ballot in August. And I think that one is more along the lines of the Call em Out Coalition where we have sample awards and all of this other kind of stuff oh, going on. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. What I'm hoping is that we can work effectively together. And I told this leader that, you know, we keep fighting each other. We'll never get the prize. Mm-hmm. Even if you don't like the approach that somebody's, you know, taking it on. Maybe they made a mistake. Maybe you had a better idea. But when you attack people and uh, attack their character, it's hard enough getting reparations on the ballot without having character assassination at risk. And a lot of times people just don't want to get involved. So I'm hoping that the city council measure will help, um, you know, Mm -hmm. in some of that conversation. But also, um, you know, if the revised city charter actually makes it on the ballot and stays on the ballot. I don't know. We'll see. Well, the Supreme Court is so far not let it be removed, so they're going to rule. Yeah. And if people vote for it and if it passes, there's also a wording in that language that would call for the creation of a reparations um, task force. So yeah. I think we're going to talk about it. And, you know, it's all fueled by marijuana money. What do we do with all this weed money? And so we don't really have recreational weed money yet because of all of the barriers to establishing recreational weed shops. But when we do, there's going to be excess income, and I think it's in Evanston, Illinois, mm-hmm. that um, used created uh, reparations off of their marijuana um, legislation. I think 20% of all the income goes into reparations. Mm-hmm. The question there is, what is reparations? What do y'all think? Right. What is so, reparations? If you if you could get rep- rep- reparations, what do you think we deserve? Mm-hmm. Roundtable. Wow. Uh, <laughs> so I would say, for me, well... I guess what 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 we deserve is a separate question from what is reparations, but I don't think we'll ever get what we deserve because I don't think that's a, a, a I don't think you could put a price on that. But I think a step towards what would what reparations for the community be would be I think investing in spaces and putting resources in spaces, particularly because they are filled with 
disadvantaged Africans and African-Americans in the country. And I think that's a thing that the country has yet to ever do. It's particularly disadvantaged them, so it's discriminated against this particular class and treated them as a separate class. And it's never corrected that by correcting them by, in some way, accepting that we have to treat them like a, a class that needs a resource and an investment from the country in a way separate from just general resources that policy, for example, like Medicare for All. Mm. So that would be my answer. Shay, David? Yeah, I, think, I think it's obviously a very, very complicated It question. is. I'm thinking like it's a layered question. we need to you know, put I, some thought into you know, that. So, some of the work that we've done a lot of thinking about is the, the role um, HOAs, homeowners associations have played in accelerating housing injustice and discrimination and exasperating inequity. And um, you know, we have one concept that maybe we'll talk about a little bit later, where instead of an HOA being used to facilitate redlining and to make neighborhoods wider or make affluent neighborhoods more affluent and poor neighborhoods even poorer, what if we can reimagine an HOA so that it's now equipped with resources, it's properly funded, so it can make the lives of the existing residents um, better, whether it's via funding to help uh, estate planning for our seniors who've been in the neighborhood 30, 40, 50 years, which will also, on. which could also be a massive transfer in wealth, if but, we. But to the bit, it's, it's transfer of wealth, but it's also control. Yeah. So, so often, our communities are they get better once other people move in, and the people who move in are the developers, or the developers will make money, and also the new people they'll have a space that is appreciated as opposed to in a static position, as you talked about earlier, Donna. But why, why can't we reimagine it? If our neighbor, if black neighbors are more valuable than they've ever been before. They have more demand. Why can't we create structures where the folks that are there benefit? Mm. People coming in to rent, you know, people are coming in to, to, to set up shop. Not everybody's a developer. Not, not everybody is a, wants to buy a house, but there's a ton of demand. So can we repurpose, reimagine the HOA to work on behalf of the existing community as opposed to extract resources away from it? Give me a bell, Jay-Z. Give me a yeah, bell. Yeah, I know, right. Ding, ding. That's, that's, <laughs> oh, there you go. You you. We are we are so much fancy that we used to, we never had all of these sound effects before. So I just I appreciate the fancy. I love that concept of reimagining. Um, I have to say though that there's homeowners, there's low income homeowners, and the impact on us. But the people who probably need reparations the most are people who were caught up in mass incarceration. The children of those people, the people who had lost their homes to overtaxation. Generations of people who, um, you know, I, I was reading this book, um, Race for Profit, mm-hmm. and the author, Kiyagi Yamada Taylor. Taylor, talked about the fact that in the 1970s, when we won, you know, equal housing, what happened then was that realtors who were supported by um, the federal government and by HUD were selling housing that should not, was, was too decrepit to be occupied. Some of the housing we see on Bargain Block, mm-hmm. right? to poor women mm. on welfare and saying, this is your home. And they mm. could not occupy these houses. The home should not have had a certificate of occupancy, but there was enough corruption that, that was allowed to take place. So if you sell me a home that's in such poor condition that I cannot live here, maintain it in a healthy manner, and I leave, then somehow the failure is on me, not on you for selling that. But you could not sell a home to a um, homeowner who had any type of worth in our society like that now the credit's messed up the house is messed up some of those houses kept being sold and resold so how did our government get involved in creating ghettos 
and then in protecting the injustice through, but because we become, what did she say, um, from racist exclusion to predatory, predatory inclusion, inclusion, right? Yeah, and so the real said. estate market was predatory on us and has been, and there's still some actors, and you know this because you are in this field, who Absolutely. are predatory as all get out, right? One of them just got 15 houses on one block, and Jeff Chalmers, um, what's his name, Mike Kelly, um, in exchange for a couple a little land to give to Fiat Chrysler, 15 houses, and this man is the biggest slumlord in the city of Detroit, or at least most well-known. Mm -hmm. And all of his all of his blight tickets were erased. And they said, well, it's art of the deal. This is good for the city of Detroit. So for me, reparations has to be all of that. But I need the people living in Mike Kelly's homes to get reparations. I need the <laughs> children who were mass incarceration of these life sentences to get some, some reparations. I want it, right? But I don't necessarily need it in the same way that some people who have been directly harmed, because people talk about reparations as slavery. Reparations is not about slavery. It's about all of the injustice since we've been here to now. And some, uh, some of this is still unjust because we haven't mm -hmm. figured out how to repay that $600 million in overtaxation. Some thing. of those people had their homes taken away. Or as so, little as $3,000. I mean, what a, what a crazy, right. crazy time. So yeah. when I pitch it to you like that, do you agree with reparations? If reparations is about existing current harm, recent past harm, harm in our lifetimes, how, does it change the conversation I, I, in your mind? I agree with reparations. I mean, I think that's a <laughs> very, I mean, I think what it means and, and how it plays out and how the policies are, are implemented to repair the damage that is caused by generational, you know, racism and economic injustice. Yeah, I believe in repairing it. And I like a lot of the ideas you just mentioned and mm -hmm. where you're focused is where I would say the focus 100% should go first. That's where the need is the most. That's where the generations haven't been able to find a way necessarily to repair on their own. And, it, and it, absolutely, they need some assistance most immediately and critically in getting some repair. So, so I would definitely agree with that. So the resolution calls for the Detroit government to create a city task force that would determine specific actions. The measure also calls for an official acknowledgement by city government of its own history of racially motivated unjust policies and practices. <laughs> it also advocates for an end of the state of, of the state of Michigan's ban on affirmative action. Uh, I think Lauren Hood is quoted here by saying the purpose of this resolution is to help establish processes, develop and implement community reparations in Detroit for mass historic unjust treatment of Detroit's majority black population. That's actually part of the resolution. So, yeah, Shay, you yeah. we bought you some time. You want to answer? Or are you good? Well, I do. If I if I could oh, just okay. you know, I, there's a precedent of reparations. I mean, the GI Bill was effectively yeah. a form of reparation, so that black folks did not get to participate. Mm -hmm. in. So I mean, it exists. And Yanni, you mentioned how the real estate agents played a massive role in facilitating redlining and encouraging, and really kind of manipulating the concept of the American dream. So those women they were selling homes to. They wanted a home for their family. They wanted a home for their children. They wanted to be participants of the American dream that's really forced upon us. And we do know home ownership is the cleanest and most simple path, typically, mm -hmm. for wealth creation. And I think real estate agents play, play, play a big role, for the better or for the worse. And we're really excited, actually, to have, consider, work with Shea as a partner in Prep Realty, homes by Shea. We really wanted to create a... A real estate brokerage that was, that was black owned, that was focused on Detroit, focused, you know, headquartered in downtown Detroit, 
folks of Metro Detroit and gave the same amount of care, consideration, professionalism mm-hmm. to someone buying a hundred thousand dollar house. We sold a lot of those. They sold a lot of those. To someone buying a million dollar house. Mm-hmm. And I think I've heard on this podcast before. You know, black people aren't a monolith. We have low income. We've got working class. We've got affluence, and we need to have professionalism across all those different different spectrums because we do want the American dream to be real. You know, I'm I'm a first generation American. My parents immigrated here from Nigeria in pursuit of that American dream. And through their hard work you know, and some luck, I've been a beneficiary of that. But it's not real. And so I think some of these proposals, hopefully, that they're working on reparations, you know, the work that we're doing on a day-to-day basis helps kind of make that dream a little bit more real uh, for the rest of our people. Put Donna Givens on the task force. Put Donna Givens-Davidson on the task force for the city. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Fresh off the press, really quick. <laughs> <laughs> Detroiters urged to weigh in on helping end gerrymandering. This is Olivia Lewis reporting for British Detroit. So just two uh, bits of information that we want our listeners to know is that there is a, a Michigan Independent Citizens Redistricting Commission that we voted for to redraw uh, congressional lines here um, in the state to uh, actually make make the congressional uh, districts make sense because right now they don't and they're kind of all over the place and they favor uh, the Republican Party and not uh, the Democratic Party or folks who vote Democrat are a little bit more liberal. And so there is an independent citizens redistricting commission full of citizens and they've been touring the state having these public meetings where folks can make public comment. This week they're in the city of Detroit and so Uh, There's actually a meeting taking place right now as we speak at Fellowship Chapel, but there is another meeting Thursday, June 17th at 5 p.m. at the TCF Center. That's located at 1 Washington. If you're a Detroiter, you'll know where Kobo or TCF Center is. Are you really a Detroiter? But it's at 1 Washington Boulevard, Detroit, Michigan, 48226. You can go to BridgeDetroit.com to get all of the information so that you can register. You can go in person, in real life, or you can visit uh, our website to register for the uh, virtual piece of that. Make sure that your voice is heard in this process, right? We, we're getting early census numbers. It looks like we're going to lose a congressional seat. Now is a better time than ever to participate in this democratic process. And so ECN is partnering with Voters Not Politicians and helping residents design um, communities of interest and um, decide whether or not you want to be fragmented and broken up into multiple communities or stand together and leverage your voice with representation, share representation um, as we speak. Members of the Lower East Side Action Plan Coalition are at Fellowship Chapel and really saying that we want our boundaries to be intact. If you want to be part of this process and you're an East Sider, especially if you are in the leap boundaries between Mount Elliott, Alter Road, I-94, and Detroit River, um, give us a call. Uh, actually, email Savannah Brewer or Angela Brown Wilson. Um, you can find us on our website at ecn-detroit.org. Find their names there, their email addresses. But email them, contact them, and let them know that you want to be a part because this conversation will um, continue. We're going to be drawing boundary lines and making our recommendations. All of this has to be tied up by September. Yeah. So it's urgent. So get out there. Make your voice heard and partner with ECN and the LEAP Coalition. That wraps up our Fresh Off the Press segment. If you have pieces that you want discussed on Authentically Detroit, you can hit us up on our socials or you can email us at authenticallydetroit at gmail.com. 
David and Andrew, we want to start this conversation hearing from the both of you. Century Partners has made a lot of news in recent years. Some of the articles you're on record and some you're not. Some of the coverage has been controversial at times, too. So I wanted to allow you both a couple of minutes to go on the record to talk about your journey. And of course, you know, Donna and I got questions. After that, so. <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, I think so. I'll just start with. My story, how I came to Detroit. So I'm originally from Mississippi, a small town called Columbus, Mississippi. I went to college in New York, graduate school in New York, and I started doing real estate back in Mississippi in 2008, 2009, right after the recession. I first, I always talked about Detroit, uh, Mayor Kilpatrick, you know, was the mayor. He's an alpha. I'm an alpha. So <laughs> Detroit was always on my radar, um, but I didn't, you know, I didn't have no particular connection to the city of Detroit. Until I read a book while uh, living in Mississippi about uh, the Ossian Sweet story called Ark of Justice. Mm-hmm. And that book inspired me. I, it was a time in my life where I was sort of feeling sorry for myself. And when you read this book, it really tells you how hard the people from the South had it when they moved to Detroit, especially compared to how the other white people who had moved here had it. So, and, and seeing them accomplish what they accomplished in Detroit, despite those hardships, gave me sort of the inspiration and fortitude to see myself through that moment in my life. So I, it always stuck with me, and I always said I always want to make that book into a movie. Hmm. So I, David was a fraternity brother of mine who always wanted to do real estate, and he pledged, uh, when, my, when he pledged our fraternity, Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated, Ada Chapter, he, um, he told me he wanted to be a real estate developer. Shout out to the Ada Chapter at A5A. Yes, sir. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> he told me he wanted to be a real estate developer. So... Years pass, he's working in finance, and you know, and everyone's impressed, and everyone thinks he's the man because he's got all the money, he's got the fancy apartment, <laughs> he's got the nice sneakers, he can buy whatever sneakers he wants. But me, I'm not impressed. So, because to me, if you're not doing something you said you wanted to do, if it's just making money, that's going to wear off soon. And if it's not generational, if you're not giving as well as contributing and receiving, then ultimately, It'll never feel satisfying. You'll never be fulfilled. Mm. So I would always kind of, you know, he read you him. like that, David. Golly, that's a fact. <laughs> from the very beginning, so I was nineteen years old. <laughs> wow, and you and, and, and you listened to him. That's the thing. That's the thing. So, so talk about that real quickly. Absolutely. How did you receive that? <laughs> I, I received it the way it should have been received, which I think is this was someone who was really looking out for me in my best interest. Mm. So. Um, you better than me. My east side would be like, who are you talking to? <laughs> uh, go ahead. I'm I think joking. I've always been I'm a joking. very, very confident person. Mm-hmm. And I think I've always been able, I think really smart people realize that their intelligence, if it's limited to them, they're not going anywhere. Mm-hmm. But to be really successful, you have to be a sponge and you have to take advice from people who are smarter and more accomplished than you mm-hmm. are. So when I was introduced to Andrew, when I was 19, I realized that immediately, um, you know, I hadn't heard of him. Um, I, I knew he was an alpha member of the fraternity that I wanted to be a part of. You know, I knew he was really smart, really well read, and had already at that point, you know, accomplished some interesting things. So it was someone that I think merited, you know, my attention. You know, I disagree with them, merited definitely considering you know, what he was saying. And mm-hmm. I think that 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 relationship has held true for our working relationship in Detroit over the last six years. That's amazing, despite yeah. all of the challenges. Despite all the challenges, the most important challenge is us working together and growing together. Us working together and growing, that is really the challenge and really the accomplishment. Our relationship 
is the business and the business is our relationship and our ability to grow as him to grow as a person and me to grow as a person and us to grow together. So that's been really the most surprisingly beautiful and powerful part of growing this business with David. You guys are more like earth, wind and fire than the temptations. Ain't nobody coming to see you Otis. <laughs> Absolutely. Very well said. I really like that. I really like that. Exactly. So talk, give, give, give us a story about the business and how you how you both landed here in the city of Detroit. It's a, it's a storied uh, tale. So we um, we started we, in 2014. So we'd already been studying and th- thinking about and talking about Detroit from probably 2012. So we're following Detroit in the news. We're... You know, we're not really visiting, but we're talking about it. And David's telling me, he's sending me news articles. I'm sending him news articles. You know, and then this is before Detroit goes into bankruptcy. It's you know, the democracy has sort of been taken away from the city. There's an emergency manager. Donna and I are still traumatized. Trey, carefully. Keep going. I know. It's a traumatizing <laughs> thing that happened. It's, it's really shocking that it's not a bigger part of the zeitgeist that that happened. Like, I don't think a lot of people are in other parts of the country really understand that that actually happened here but but we were following it so we didn't know that happened and we really paid close attention to it and we we step we kept becoming more and more interested we made a trip in 2014 we went to boston edison was the first neighborhood that we sort of focused on right outside boston edison we bought a house on atkinson street and we started with that one house and um, i'll let david tell the story from there yeah so in that one house and uh you know i i think one thing that attracted me to Detroit, which is different from New York, is development comes in tandem with displacement in New York because it's a very populated city. I mean, there's nothing you can do. Um, the only way you can kind of buy something and create future value is by getting more expensive, people who can pay more to, to actualize, the, activate the assets. So I think Detroit is very interesting in that there was this massive, this long history of homeownership. Detroit had some of the highest rates of homeownership in the country. It was one of the wealthiest cities in the country, some of the highest rates of black homeownership in the country. And so we thought opportunity to come here and be able to develop and activate some of this vacant housing stock and some of these beautiful and what we still thought were really beautiful neighborhoods. I think was something we couldn't pass up. And again, just said we started uh, one house on Atkinson. We bought a few more in 2014. Uh, we raised some money from our friends and family uh, to, to, you know, we put together case studies. We had budgets for how much things would cost. They ended up costing way more. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely <laughs> way more. Those historic homes are, are no joke. But, um, yeah, we, we raised, I think, in 2015, of course, 2015, we raised about a million bucks. So, in our personal money and the money from our networks, uh, we put together a presentation to, to really invest as much as we could um, on Atkinson Street. Um, and our, our thought was, if we can concentrate investment in one area, uh, we can leverage the amazing history and infrastructure of Boston Edison. We can leverage the amazing history of the, the stories of the people that were there who lived in that neighborhood, folks who lived there 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Uh, we can do high-quality rehabs instead of kind of doing cheap rehabs and slumming and loading out the houses, which is what a lot of the residents thought we would do when we first came. Um, we can recruit tenants to that area who respect the neighborhood, respect the community, respect the folks that were there, that we can maybe you know, create an impact. And that's what we did over the course of 2015, 16. We started with those houses on Atkinson, did a full rehab um, on them, and we saw a couple interesting things happen. One, we saw, you know, some of the folks who have been there for a while, uh, they saw things were happening in the neighborhood. They saw the problem values were appreciating. 
Uh, some of them got around to now maybe economic sense to invest in that porch repair uh, or maybe invest in some of the aesthetic things of, the, of their home. Uh, we saw other smaller developers in the neighborhood or come to the neighborhood, they saw there were three or four houses being remodeled on the street. Uh, they would see what we were doing. They see the amount of money we were spending on, on the houses doing the high quality uh, rehabs. They saw the type of folks that we were, were working with and they would buy a house on the block and also do a high quality rehab. And so in, that, in those two years, uh, a lot of momentum, not just us, but other folks, uh, local folks who lived there for a long time and local Detroit developers. And I think Detroit's like kind of like Hollywood where everyone wants to be an actor. Seems like everyone wants to be a developer <laughs> in Detroit. Everyone has a you know a family member who's in development, who owns houses. I mean, rehabbing houses and owning property, it still is very much a part of the culture here. Uh, so to be a part of that, accelerate that, uh, that was really where we started. So when I, I remember you were speaking at Wayne State University when I first got to Eastside Community Network. I think. Donna, don't destroy the studio. We just got back. What did Donna? I do? You just, I don't know what happened. What's I up? don't, I have no idea. You just All knocked right. something over. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, oh, yeah. Cause you... All right. All right. So um, I'm in my destructive mode. Um, <laughs> but I heard you speak, and it was really impressive. Um, you had this vision that you were not only going to, um, you know, do this, but you were going to train other people and bring other people into your network to help seed smaller developers. Am I, do I remember that correctly? Yeah, absolutely. That was a proposal that David uh, presented to the city very early in a, within us moving. I think 2015 yeah. Yeah, presented that to the city. Yeah, absolutely. So it was really cool, and I was like, wow, that's a good idea. And the next thing I knew, you were part of this project with Peter Cummings and the platform and the Fitzgerald Project. So how did you get from this vision that you were going to do things and you were sort of in the driver's seat yeah. to being in this partnership and really partnering with the city of Detroit? What was your Come pathway on, let's, there? Let's do it. Clear the air. Yeah, I think, well, the city announced with an RFP. So I think how we originally, how we originally got involved really was through the Herman Kiefer. So the Herman Kiefer, they were... The developer that eventually won that development was having a community event. And Dave and I went and spoke at that community event. And what we said was that we believed that in these developments, you should structure it where there was equity for the community through a version of an HOA. It's an idea that we basically, that was one of our original ideas as far as the development firm. We still support that idea. We still believe that's a powerful idea and a powerful way to to make equitable revitalization happen in communities. So we spoke about that. The city, that kind of got us on the city's radar. And I think the city wanted to figure out a way to do housing on scale. And they started, we started having meetings with them and talking to them about the housing supply in the neighborhood and what they were thinking about with the land bank, what their inventory was like. So it was really that they kind of brought us in trying to, ascertain information about what we were already doing right. and trying to use that information to figure out a way to, we didn't understand this. We didn't know what was going on on the other side, but I think they were trying to use that information to see how it fit into what their goals and plans were. And then eventually they made us aware of this idea of doing, you know, 300 lot parcels, a hundred houses. And, you know, we were excited about it and we thought it was a, a great idea and, you know, we supported trying to apply for it to uh, compete to win it and try to succeed. So who's they? Um, Arthur Jimmison and Maurice Cox. So it was basically HRD, HR and planning. 
Yeah, I, re- I, re- I remember when it was announced, you guys got it. I'm like, who are these sharp black brothers on television standing behind <laughs> Mike Duggan? Who, who are they? Where did they come from? I want to ask you guys about the timeline, right? Because I, you know, you guys are here. We're authentically Detroit. I want us to sort of, you know, he, you know, clear some of this up. The, what timeline did the city initially ask you to complete that Fitzgerald project? And from your purview, was that timeline realistic? And how did you guys respond? So I'll, I'll handle that just because I was already talking. So the there was a question on the timeline during the interview process. Mm-hmm. So when we were interviewing for the to win the development, we we had a three year timeline with a certain amount of money and funding baked into the proposal. So we were supposed to get the the money, and then from there it would be three years to complete the development. That was our proposal during the interview process. The city and other partners had different timelines and we accommodated their timelines because we were focused on the bigger picture. And I think that I'm, you know, I think that those timelines had a, those unrealistic timelines had a negative effect that I think overshadowed some of the positive that we did. So if I could go back there, yeah, I would probably go back to that moment. I would slow everybody down a little bit and really try to say, hey. Let's just slow down. I think we're going to be able to accomplish what we want to accomplish without this big number and this big timeline. You know, and but, I think the mayor said that. So I don't think that's really news that but, we shouldn't but, come out like that. But, but, but I mean, it's not like you came out there on your own, right? Yeah. It is like you were enticed into that number. Is that correct? Or did you say, hey, I think we can do 100 houses in five years? I think, I mean, so at that point, we have rehabbed about I don't know, 40, 50 houses. North End on Atkinson Street, mm-hmm. Virginia Park, um, on the East Side, East Angeles Village, Morningside. So we had some momentum, you know, we had some success. And you mentioned that idea of uh, we actually were working with with the with Maurice Cox at the time to develop the idea of effectively a, a, an incubator. So to create a bunch of other different development companies for folks that lived here to help them actually rehab their own communities and, and create a kind of scalable model. So I think that we were really excited about the opportunity to do that, to elevate that on a neighborhood context. We're most excited about the fact that it wasn't just us doing it. We had, you know, we were new to the city, but it seemed like we had a lot of city support and also philanthropic support. Mm-hmm. And we thought only reason we would ever kind of start on something that ambitious if we felt like we had adequate support. And we thought that tri-sector approach, having a strong, uh, you know, foundation partner. And you know, Knight and and Kresge along the city uh, would would, uh, would lead to success. Can you, you talk about that? that uh, I'm sorry, Donna. Can you talk about that capital flow thing that you mentioned, uh, Andrew? Uh, the timeline, you guys being able to do a certain amount of homes and lots at scale with uh, a consistent capital flow coming in yeah. from the city. Did that happen? No, and I, I don't think that we necessarily expected them to make that happen. You know, and I don't want to sit here and just blame the city because I'm a, I'm a developer. And to be honest with you, I stand by the stuff I say, I stand by what I do. You know, I don't have to point the finger at anyone else. You know, I think that it was difficult to get construction financing mm-hmm. in the neighborhood context. It's difficult mm-hmm. for lots of people. I, I think we anticipated that the amount of attention that this neighborhood was getting would maybe loosen up some of those constraints when it came to single family rehab and construction dollars. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, it did not. It, those constraints remain to this day. 
So someone who wanted to, uh, the only type of person that could do a Fitzgerald. And let's just imagine that's a good thing to do. I don't. I, it's debatable whether doing 100 houses in, in two years is actually a good thing to do. Mm-hmm. But let's say it is. That person couldn't do it because right now they're really, unless they had all the money themselves in cash in hand, unless they were independently wealthy, there isn't the construction financing really in scale in that type of neighborhood to be able to do it. So that it, it became, there really was no tool to get it done from a construction financing standpoint really quickly. So mm-hmm. that's why we, and I always thought it was better to do it stronger, really have it be very sort of organic, not force it. Yeah. So I was always fine with it going a little longer. And, but, and that was, you know, you could get construction financing to do it longer. But I think ultimately when the community became aware of an ex, of expanded, extended, extended timeline, they wanted a different approach. Well, let me, let me say this. I'm going to give it to you from another side. You had the foundations you had the city and you were experienced developers. But you did not have any experienced community developers at the table. Any experienced community developer would have told you, this is not going to go that easily. You're going to deal with title issues. You're going to deal with financing issues because there's people who are really, really experienced and good at their work who struggle. And one of the challenges is that your work or your this promise was weaponized against us. Not because of you. But Maurice Cox was not the most respectful person to CDCs. of CDCs, and maybe even particularly me, um, <laughs> was not very respectful on hearing from people. Sort of like, you know what, you guys messed up the city, and now we brought smart people in, and we're going to do things the right way. And there was this mindset, if you looked at everybody in planning and development, practically they're bringing people in from outside. It's like, y'all don't think we manufacture intelligence in Detroit? Go back and read. Arca Justice, okay, we've been smart in Detroit for a minute, okay? Ossian Suites' ancestors are here, okay? And so we have a very, very well-equipped, knowledgeable community. And so I feel like what ended up happening was that the city created this dynamic where the community felt disrespected. And then when things didn't happen according to certain things, and then understand People in community organizations are not getting funds. They're, the city is saying we're not going to. Maurice Cox told me that he that I could not do any work in any neighborhood he unless told he us. told philanthropy that they could work in the neighborhood, and no philanthropy would work with me without his permission. Mm-hmm. And because and so it's like cool. Do you, don't Maurice? And I was like, well, how come they keep on funding me? I don't really understand what you're saying. <laughs> but that's cool, you know, if you have that kind of control. But I think, you know, Arthur Jemison grew to respect and value the work of community development because he was new here too. And I think both of you were kind of new to development and not necessarily understanding the history and role of community development. Well, I've been doing a lot of development. I've done a lot of real estate to, to help um, people of color throughout my career in real estate, but I had never done anything this difficult. I 100% agree with you. When you say, when I say, when I'm talking about community development organizations, yeah, I agree. But no, I do want to make this point. I agree with you, Donald. Right. Okay. I think that we got caught up in something. 
that we actually, if you look at David and I, we never said anything negative about community organizations. We supported them. A lot of the ones we gave, we like donated and went to their events. We yeah, understand their importance. Partner with uh, yeah. community developments on, on deals with uh, with Stohan and CDC. I mean, we it's hard work. Yeah, yeah. we 100% got used as for something that we do not agree with. We do not think that private development and taking the public lashing for it, right? Yeah, yes. it, it, this, yeah. And, I agree. And so you became convenient whipping boys. And so you know, I was actually quoted in a newspaper article. You remember this, David? Because that's how we met, and I ended up in your <laughs> office. I was quoted in a newspaper article because I was also saying, you know, that the city cannot determine a market. How could you fix up Fitzgerald and make Fitzgerald do what you wanted to do when Bagley was right next to Fitzgerald? And, you know, um, disclaimer, I grew up in Bagley, so I love it. Pennington, between Curtis and Pickford, those are my people, okay? Mm -hmm. So Bagley was struggling, and Bagley had an opportunity to come back. So how could Fitzgerald come back before Bagley? What happened is the work you were doing in Fitzgerald helped accelerate the redevelopment 100%. of Bagley. We're well aware, opinion. Donna. We're and well so, aware. Right. And, so, and so I know you are, right? And, and it's, it's, it's just the law of, and, and Shay, you know this, nobody else can decide what a real estate market is going to be. Mm-hmm. The buyer decides where they want to be. And the so, buyer decides the value. That's right. Mm-hmm. And so the buyer decides the value. And there was also this concept that, was almost like Maurice felt like he could decide this is where everything is going to go and that you pick out these strategic neighborhoods and, and whatever. Des- and design it. And design We're it. Design and design. <laughs> city of design. There's absolutely a role for yeah. private developers. I'm, um, I think private developers play an ex- essential role. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I remember because you were black private developers. I was like, yeah, and you were young. I was like, yeah, that's great. You know, because you want to see that that's happen, dope. right? Mm-hmm. We never had an opportunity. When I was at Vanguard Community Development Corporation, I was the first executive director there from 1999 to 2007. And the folks we were working with were not, for the most part, black people. So I was really excited to see you guys in that space, right? But I think that I was quoted an article in a way that made it seem like I was attacking Century Partners. And I was like, no, that ain't cool. So I wrote a letter, and I copied you, and I was like, listen, this is not what I said. This is quote was taken out of context. I don't want you to think that I would be a person who would attack young black entrepreneurs, because that's not who I am, right? Even if we disagree on something, I just think that we need to encourage, especially, you know, younger people. If there's a responsibility, even if, eh, maybe you shouldn't have done that. Maybe you shouldn't have worked with Maurice, but, you know, <laughs> that's, that's my thing. Water on the bridge, because we have all... Donna, there was, there was only one city planner. <laughs> no, 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 I know that. I know that. I know that. And I'm, like I said, I'm not really criticizing you all yeah, at all. Yeah. What I'm saying is we all learn from our, our, our experiences how to do that. And I think we can be a more forgiving town and mm. figure out how to continue working together because really what you're doing is helping to... Um, change neighborhoods. Atkinson mm-hmm. Street has been transformed. I'm really happy to hear that you've worked with Lisa. That's my girl. I love Lisa Johannan and the work she's, she's amazing, doing over yeah. there yeah. Um, in the community and other people who are doing that work. Um, and, so, I, and I do want to say, I, mean, I think as as challenging as that development was, I think you know, no one expected Mary Grove to also go bankrupt at the same time. Uh, you know, the, the foundation were pouring a bunch of money mm-hmm. into it. It wasn't a tremendous learning experience. And I think we got a lot done um, that we're incredibly, incredibly proud of and that we'll remember forever and we'll be really proud of. Um, I think we learned a lot about what granular community economic empowerment looks like and we were able to hire 40 people. You couldn't just give them checks. You had to, you had to create a system where you can pay people directly, cash, you know, the day of for work performs. You know, we were able to 
really for the first time force banks to give traditional financing to first time home buyers. Nice. Um, Part of the reason why, you know, uh, just because a house is $30,000 doesn't mean that the average person can afford it. If a house is $30,000, that means a, bo- a bank won't finance it. That's right. Which means you need $30,000 of cash. So that house may, might as well be $3 million because most people don't have $30,000 in cash. So by working with the banks very closely with first time home buyers, we were able to sell houses for you know, 80,000, 90,000, 110, the, the most expensive house is 115,000, where the first time home buyer only had to put up $2,000, $3,000, $4,000. And so there's a massive wealth creation that was created in that process, in part because we were taking the time to be very careful and work very diligently with the, the new interest into that. And they ain't so, writing about that. So I'm glad you were able to get that out. And yeah. you know, the other powerful thing that you said that I think is important to name is that you learned a tremendous amount of lessons because, you know, traditionally black folks aren't able to learn lessons without being penalized. Right. White people can do all kinds of things, fail and say, Oh, we failed, but we learned a lot. And then somebody will come and give them all the capital they need to apply said lessons to do whatever. When Recovery we- <laughs> park, anyone? <laughs> So we back in the studio and Donna just like authentic, authentic. Go ahead. We're also very intentional about how we went about it. So we were never just doing Fitzgerald the whole time. I mean, Mm -hmm. we have other developments. We talked about that. We had two real estate funds already that were worth about $6 million in assets already working on the east side, north end, Atkinson. So, you know, we had uh, sustainable, profitable transactions we could also point to Mm -hmm. the entire time. And that helped uh, sustain us economically. What what was a tough development? So one of the things that when you talk about the $30,000 house, you can't get a bank loan. And I think that we have to look beyond banks um, because, you know, most of our people, I didn't even find out until like this year, last year, that my grandparents bought their home on land contract. My grandparents bought their house, um, two houses on land contract because that's what was available to black people. Um, Land contracts done properly are not a problem. People say, well, land contracts are exploitative. And I say predatory lending is exploitative. So it doesn't matter. It's not the tool. It's the details inside of there. Would you consider working with an organization that was producing homes for sale by land contract, where it is the house that is not going to sell for, say, $30,000, but maybe $50,000 that would be available to somebody even um, lower income than the person who may have enough income, but may not have the credit to qualify for that mortgage. I think you're, you're highlighting a really significant tension, I think, and an issue in how homes are valued, appraised, and ultimately financed. There's no bigger wealth creation tool in the history of America than the 30-year mortgage. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's no tool where you can buy something that's worth $200,000 put up $10,000 and pay 3% over for fixed rate over 30 years. I want to push back on that a little bit. Okay, so my sure. cousin, I have a cousin. I found out about this this weekend. It was um, really mind-blowing. My cousin lives in the Bay Area. Okay. She and her husband purchased a starter home, built enough wealth to purchase a home, and they have good jobs. They're professionals that built purchase a home worth $600,000. In the Bay Area, that's not a whole lot of money. They just sold their house for $1.9 million after 10 years. So they've made $1.3 million off of a home in 10 years. I'm a lifelong Detroiter. I grew up, parents, professionals, lived in a nice neighborhood. Houses did not appreciate like that in Palmer Woods when I was growing up. And so 
we can talk about wealth creation among black people, but I think Andre Perry and others have documented that black housing owned by black people does not necessarily create wealth in the same way it does. Now, you may have some wealth, but, you know, you uh, and then a lot of times people are unable to obtain the kind of financing to maintain the homes. And we just had the largest stripping of wealth in the history of America, practically in, in uh, among black people in the early 2000s when we had the year 2008, 2009, 2010, the so-called housing recession. Detroit used to be over 60% homeowners, and now we're about 48%. And that has everything to do with losing those 30-year mortgages because they weren't 3% mortgages. Right. So, yeah, so it goes back to exactly your point earlier. But it's, it's, what type of debt? But, but, it's, we, but it's the debt that was sold people. It right. was the debt that banks offered people. It was the bank could look at you and look at a white person. You had the exact same fundamental you know, credit, history. credit history, income, all of that. And they would give you the predatory loan and get the white person the conventional mortgage. And because black people didn't really understand it. So, I, you know, when banks say, well, listen, that's the way to build wealth. I'm saying, wait a minute. We had a lot of loss, unprecedented loss in the city of Detroit. And we never saw housing prices appreciate in the way that they have in the rest of the nation. Nothing like the Bay Area here. Nobody's making well, I do know somebody who became a millionaire here, but that's like <laughs> once in a while. That's like mm-hmm. very, very rare. So I guess. My question for you is, and this is a serious question because I think you have these tensions. One is that we should be able to build wealth in our housing. We should be able to participate in the most wealth-building thing that Mm -hmm. has happened in most of America, and it has not happened for us. But the other thing is that when we build wealth and when we have those housing appreciation like that, we already have so many people locked out of housing opportunity altogether that... I was thinking about it with my cousin, like, that's really great, and I'm happy for her, right? Super happy for her. But just think about the fact that she bought a house for $600,000 is now worth $1.9 million. It's going to be harder and harder for people like her to get into a house like that. So, you know, are we increasingly locking people out, and how do you strike that balance in um, even how you conceptualize yeah. redevelopment? I told you I wanted you to solve racism today, so I know yeah, that I'm asking it. you. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> Um, so I know That's these the are announcement. these are some these are some difficult questions, but I just want us to struggle with those concepts because it sounds easy to say you can build wealth with housing, and some people have, but most Black people don't seem to build a whole lot. If I could just say one thing, I think I would, when I said you know thirty year financing fixed rate at three percent is the easiest path to wealth creation historically, I think that's that's true. I think if you look at how those loans were giving to Majority folks versus our folks, the way they were distributed were incredibly different. So if we're talking about a land contract versus a 30-year, 3% fixed-rate mortgage, I think you got to go to the 30-year fixed-rate mortgage all day. Now, the mm-hmm. question is, how do we create an eligibility criteria that meets people, folks, you know, where they're at? I think that's a separate question. But if you're saying I have 30 years at 3% to pay my money back or five years at 10%, which is what I've seen a lot of land contract structure. Or just the amount that you have to apply yeah. down, but, but down. But, but, for but, a land contract. But there are, astronomical. there are land contracts. There are some of my peers who are doing land contracts where they don't do that. Sure. At the end of this period, you're going into the house, you're buying it, and at the end of this period, you're taking that, that um, payment out with a mortgage. And you've okay, got, got this, you. this house... But you've had a chance to get in this house and to have mm-hmm. something, and you're building equity while you are preparing 
to get a mortgage because the reality is in neighborhoods, some neighborhoods I'm working in, you can't, nothing's appraised. The appraisal industry is That's not the mortgage, problem. it's the appraisal mm -hmm. industry. You know what I'm talking about, Shay. Mm -hmm. The appraisal industry is what really controls it all. And when appraisal is based on racist factors, I can only base your house on what the house next door to you sold for. And the house next door to you doesn't sell for much because of these things. Um, you know, you have a whole neighborhood where you had all this foreclosure crisis and you have bank sales and all of a sudden the housing values have plummeted. You know, maybe it went from a high of 120000 Now you can't get, you haven't had a recent sale for more than 40000 So this house is now worth $40,000 and you need, you can't, you know, how do you, so we have to come up with, I think, a pathway from where we are to where we want to be. And I think if we're strategic, perhaps land contracts in strategic situations can be a pathway to the bank. Because sure. other than that, we're just saying, well, because bank th the 30-year mortgage at 3% interest is better, we'll only do that. Right, right. Understanding that, and, and, and I've been promised in the past five years that everybody that says we're working on a tool that the banks are going to make available to people who are low... I'm still waiting on that tool. When that tool comes to let me know, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Because banks are in it for money. And and you remember when um, Jamie Dixon, is that his name? Jamie Diamond. Diamond. Jamie Diamond. Thank you. I'm so bad with names. When Jamie Diamond announced uh, maybe a year or two ago that J.P. Morgan Chase was no longer going to focus just on profit. They were going to work, focus on social good. Yeah. And he announced that. And his board came back and said, oh, no, you're not. <laughs> we are not in business for social good. So you couldn't even have a CEO move away from the profit motive of a bank. I think that one of the things is if we had enough land contracts and we were competing with banks, banks might come up with those products faster because they understood we didn't need them anymore. But um, I don't know. And maybe we just work with CDFIs because we're working with community development financial institutions to, to serve as in that role. And they're mm. the ones who are going to help, I think, float some of that debt for us. Mm. So we can extend land contracts. So we can develop the model I was just talking about to try to work in neighborhoods that, quite frankly, you may not want to work in because you can't make it. Your model doesn't fit. Yeah, that's an exciting model. I mean, I think that especially with CDFI support. And then because you, you're you so close to the ground that you can make those lending decisions because you really know the community. You know, mm -hmm. there's a there's a certain community debt that you can understand when you're making the loan as an organization that a bank is never going to understand that. So, so as far as underwriting and who to, who to choose to give a loan to. So I definitely think that could work. I think it's an interesting model. I think it takes all types. Right. right I think exactly. to revitalize Detroit, we're going to need all different types and we need lots of creativity we definitely do not need to be afraid to try different new things yes back to the opposite we should be looking to try new things um i mean, I, I, I like and, and land contracts have been done very successfully in detroit i think you got to register the deed so we've we've worked with some people um advise them on how what the things to look out for you know land contracts but ultimately we believe you know cities are dynamic places that that's what makes them unique and they're either getting better or they're getting worse. You know, they're either deteriorating um, or not serving the people they intend to serve or serving other populations. And so what we try to do in our work is make sure that as change happens, because change in a city is inevitable, uh, that the folks who are here to begin with, the folks who you know, really you know, stuck through Detroit during some of the tough times are able to economically participate as much as possible. Mm. And for us, I think oftentimes when it comes to African-Americans, 
the, I guess the, the, the success is defined in non-economic terms. It's got to be softer stuff. It's got to be kind of more emotional or feeling or socially oriented. I think it's very important in a capital society because that's where we live for there to be specific tools to create, create, create increased economic opportunity for people, to create increased wealth. If you don't have that, you really don't have freedom and you're kind of in that sort of that uh, chaotic, uh, that trauma-filled environment that you talked about, the, you know, the kids that, that, go to, that go to GPS. If you're coming from a place of trauma, you don't have that stability, you don't have a base of wealth. In America, it's very difficult uh, to, to really succeed and have a mentally you know, stable and emotional uh, stable basis. Can we agree on both ends? Absolutely. Can we agree 100%. that you are you need places need for people to acquire wealth? Um, housing should work more effectively for homeowners in Detroit so that they don't end up having a house that stays pretty much flat in terms of value for 10, mm-hmm. 15, 20 years. Mm-hmm. In 30 years, mm-hmm. your house is supposed to be worth more than it was. Oh, there I go, destructive again. <laughs> um, in 30 years, it's supposed to be worth more than it was when you bought it. Not just a little bit more. It's supposed to not just keep up with the inflation. It's supposed to increase like it does in other places. I don't know if you read The Color of Law. Or Know Your Price. I mean, Andre Perry out of Brookings, you know, a researcher, solved for all of the factors that, you know, he researched, you know, white neighborhoods and black neighborhoods with the same kind of comps, housing stock, you know, resources, access to retail and all of those things and still found a significant devaluation in the black asset versus the white asset this is stuff that's available on the brookings institute and in his book know your price and so we have i think we too have to acknowledge that we are working in an oppressive structure right Right. and so even though we are individual actors trying to do good i think the structure all in all is oppressive to marginalized communities and we have to also walk and chew gum at the same time Work within the structure. We are a capitalistic society. Yes, I get. But you know, my my take is how do we how do we perform in a capitalistic society while trying to completely dismantle it? Like <laughs> that, that yeah. And we've had this conversation. Yeah, it's like absolutely. I'm just like I'm not with it. Right? I'm just not. You know? Yeah. I'm I'm a, I'm a radical, so I'll be I'll acknowledge that, and I understand yeah. that there's room for people to really believe that this is what we need to do, and I'm not opposed to it. Yeah. Right. But what I also think we need to do at the same time is understand that there are people who will never measure up to those metrics. They just won't. We're right across the street from Capuchin's Soup Kitchen or Capuchin's mm-hmm. whatever. That's it. Soup Kitchen. Soup Kitchen. And the folks who are coming in and out of there are not on their way to a $50,000 land contract. <laughs> you know, a lot of them are really struggling with life issues that are too great for us to solve. And a lot of times what we do in our society, I think, is we decide, well, everybody should be a homeowner. And then we forget about rentals. We dismantle all public housing. We have people who need public housing because they're not going to be able to pay rent very well. And we can either have them on the street or in public housing. I believe that housing is a human right. And for those people who can participate and want to participate in wealth building, it should not be denied black people. Black mm-hmm. people should have equal access if that's what you want to do. And we need on-ramps to that for people who can't just get there yet. And then we also need to create housing for people who are just never going to qualify for those, you know, on-ramps. You know, and I, I've been saying this for a while. You know, you read the Bible. The poor will always be with us. They are always with us. There's no nation in the world that has solved poverty. There's no social system in the world, really, 
that has solved poverty, except maybe in communal societies where everybody sort of shares assets. But even if you look at most communist societies, mm-hmm. <laughs> you still have poverty mm-hmm. and you still have injustice. And so given that, the question for me is, how can we use the resources that we have to support those people that capitalism kind of exploits? Because capitalism is sort of based on two things, labor exploitation and resource exploitation. You've got to have an exploitable class of people At the in order to be in capitalist. You've got to have somebody who's working for less than $15 an hour, and you've got to be able to explain how you can't pay them $15 an hour because your hamburgers will cost more or whatever. You know what I mean? I mean, this yeah, reality I got to cut in here. I got to cut okay, in Okay, go, so, go on. You know, I, I, I'm aware. <laughs> I was aware that you had this point of view, and I know there are a lot of uh, people that I admire and respect that have that point of view. I'm not a macroeconomic um, economist. I never studied economics in college. I don't know if there's like, it's academically proven that capitalism has to exploit labor or resources. I don't know if that's academically proven or not. Um, But for me, in my lived business experience, it doesn't, I don't see where I inherently, as a businessman, in looking to inherently focus my efforts on exploiting resources or labor. No, no that's not, not what I'm not, saying. That's not yeah. at all what I'm yeah. saying. Yeah. What that's I'm what saying, saying is I yeah, have an yeah. iPhone, I have an iPad, mm-hmm. and I have an Apple computer. Mm-hmm. But if you don't think there's somebody in China who's creating some stuff and getting exploited in order to make that, yeah, okay, whatever. But, yeah, so I do think... We have exploitable, we exploit, and I'm not just saying in the United States, it's part yeah. of the system. Yeah. We exploit labor pools. The whole rationale for NAFTA is we can have people making cars in Mexico and pay them much less than they make in the United States. We have that so that we can keep costs down and the people who are billionaires can make a lot of money. And I don't want to get into a macroeconomics argument, but yeah. you don't even have to because you know that we have sweatshops and we know these things are happening around the world. And in the United States, the people who clean the hospital floors are not going to make the same amount of money as doctors. In in the plant around the block, you have at, at Fiat Chrysler, you have temporary labor that is there to reduce the cost of producing things and in construction let's bring it to construction right when somebody decided it was a good idea to deport all the mexicans (laughs) the construction costs went up and i'm sorry because it was an exploitable labor pool you were not having to pay them union wages this is my position oh absolutely so what i hear you saying is that there are a lot of forms of exploitative capitalism and 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 i agree with that there's a lot of forms of Therefore, poor people will always be with us. And therefore, yes. we have a social responsibility. Mm-hmm. Not you. We have a social responsibility. It's a collective responsibility to do something for them. And so as I think that what you're doing adds value to the ecosystem, right? You're creating housing and you're creating opportunities for wealth building and beautiful homes for people who want to participate. I think it's also important to understand that everybody can't participate. And that's mm-hmm. what people like us do. And sometimes it's helpful for people who have your skills and knowledge to mm-hmm. work with people like us so that you can help us get there. And speak that language you were talking about. Yeah. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Because that's the, that in our community, I'm not trying to be preachy. In our community, the average income is about $28,000 a year. In the community I serve, $28,000 a year. And, you know, the amount of poverty is so significant. The kids I work with. And so as much as I support this we got to support this, too. And I guess my question for you is, how do we work with you to do that? What are some on-ramps for us to work with organizations like yours? Because I believe that you have a positive social goal as well as 
um, you know, uh, a business goal. Before I answer that, I think a lot of capitalism is in the, in the hands of who's wielding the power. Mm-hmm. And that's why I believe representation is so important in development. Uh, or across the board in, in healthcare and education, I think it's incredibly important for people to see others that, that look like them uh, doing things that they admire and respect, uh, do, building things that are, that are sustainable. Uh, and so in everything we, we try to do, you know, I, you know, I come from a poor background from South Jamaica, Queens. I know, I know, I know what that's like. I, I know what it you know, feels like to be poor. So when I take a lens to how we conduct business, you know, exploitation is the least thing from my mind. It's the first thing from my mind. Oh, yeah. I'm thinking about how can we you know, work with the people we, we have? How can we empower the people in our communities? How can we get the people working with us today paid more next year? And, and that's our goal. We want everybody to be sustainable. We want everybody to build wealth for themselves. And I think it's part because of our experience, our lived experience. So I agree with you generally about capitalism. That's 100% true. But it's important for us as individuals to decide what role we decide we want to play Absolutely. in the ecosystem. And who we want to lift up and who we want to empower and how we want to spend our time and our dollars and our resources. And that's what Andrew and I try to do it every day. And that's why we decided to work with, with Shay. Just it's important to have your values very clearly, clearly aligned and, and decided so that you can kind of put your, your impression on the world in a, in a way that aligns with your values. And that is one of the beauties of entrepreneurship. If it's done well, you're able to, as perfectly as possible, align your values and work. So, it's so difficult. You- it's very difficult. I wouldn't just encourage anybody to be an entrepreneur. <laughs> it's incredibly challenging. I don't value entrepreneurship over just having having a job and progressing the corporate ladder. But that is a field where, if, if, if done correctly, you're able to potentially achieve that, that synergy. Is there a, a, a supply of black subcontractors and labor that you're able to tap into, or is there a need for us to increase the supply? Because that's one way I can see yeah. a partnership happening Absolutely. is job training and placement and partnerships in that form. Do you see an opportunity there? Yeah, absolutely. I think that um, there's a huge need for that in, um, in, in, our, in our business. And I think one way, I think uniquely, I, th- I think a lot of times the way the training works is it's directly for union jobs, for big construction companies, for big jobs. And I think that's great. And I think there's a lot of programming and a lot of of infrastructure being developed for that. But I think also helping small businesses, helping that one plumber get another, helping one person get with a plumber so he really takes that guy under his arm and really helps that guy over multiple years and decades, then that guy helps that guy. I think really building out the small business ecosystem of Detroit, a partnership like that would be really, I think, really powerful. I think that's where we could really do the most help is that we're most connected to the small business vendors. You know, the guys that don't necessarily even do the big construction jobs because they like the flexibility of just, you know, working when they want to work. Yeah, I have friends like that who, and have, they have a really hard time hiring people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, um, and, you know, I've, I've done work with young people. When I was at Youth Development Commission, we were training young people in the construction trades, and they weren't able to get stable jobs. And a lot of times, just the way the unions operate, they're still squeezed out. Yeah. And so I think that type of partnership is something that could make sense because what would happen is, you get trained in this, and if you don't go to work immediately or you don't get consistent work, a lot of people would just give up and quit. Mm-hmm. And so, you you know, I, I imagine with constructionists, with all things, the longer you do it, the better you are. Exactly. And you need to be able to have those jobs in order to make it work for you. And just even having somebody looking over you to help really 
help grow you because he's going to benefit or she's going to benefit because they're developing a worker. And then, you know, they have a reason to really pay attention to you as opposed to just, you know, if you're just one of many people at a huge construction site. Can you guys talk about this partnership with Shay and what's going on? What y'all doing? What y'all up to? HGTV star. What y'all, what y'all plotting on? So basically, when I met David, he's like, please come. No, I'm just joking. (laughs) She's not joking. She's not joking. No, I am joking. So I've been a real estate agent for 17 years. I started back in 2004 working in new construction with the developers, selling high-end condominiums when Kwame Kilpatrick, when he was in office, how they offered that NEZ development, and there was a lot of condo conversions and new development, and that's when I got my start, and then when the market crashed, I made engines. No, I worked um, doing property management. I give all props, because that's... Shout out to Nicole Perry. What did you work for? And proper, doing property management. Uh-huh. I worked with Southwest Solutions. Oh. And it was a lot because they, mm-hmm. at the time, God managed like 60 buildings. Yep. And, An extensive And it wasn't portfolio. the same as helping buyers pick out counter selections nope. and telling them why this condo is <laughs> they should live here. It was different. <laughs> and then uh, I had bills to pay. So I uh, worked at Chrysler. And I worked at Trend Engine, which is a plant that's actually very nice and clean and moves not as fast as, like, assembling um, Parts. assembling the cars. Mm-hmm. Like, when you assemble the engines, the line moves a little slower. And I was fortunate enough to be put in a position where I actually worked a machine that tested the engines. That was the best thing that ever happened to me. And it, it afforded me to... Shay worked the line, y'all. <laughs> it afforded me to maintain my home and my bills and during times where things weren't going so well. And then um, in 2000, maybe like 2000, I want to say 16, 17, I had a friend who was actually the um, construction manager over construction when I was selling condos he had just got his license he's like you know the market is really picking up you need to really get back out there so I started doing it part-time and then my husband is like Shay you know you're working this schedule from 4 p.m. to 4 a.m. you know we're newlyweds I got married in 2015 we weren't really seeing each other I wasn't really sleeping and he asked me why was I still going there and being independent for so long I had a decent job like I graduated high school a long time ago (laughs) but when I graduated you go to college you pick up a trade or you work at the plant yeah in Detroit I picked up a lot of trades I'm certified Mm -hmm. in a lot of areas I didn't go to college but I'm certified where it afforded me I've been on my own since a month after my 18th birthday. Wow. So I've always been just like super independent, super responsible. So when he said, you don't need to go back there, it still took me like years to just stop until one day. This was the day. This is the day that did it for me. It was the day that I was on the line. And when you work at the plant, you get a 30 minute lunch, but you get like two tiny breaks Mm -hmm. right back. Mm -hmm. Working that 12 hour shift is like our combined total worth of breaks and the lunchroom is far quiet space is far and I was in the middle of negotiating a deal for four hundred thousand dollars and that my team lead says Shay you got to get off that phone and I'm like Mm-mm. <laughs> <laughs> what? and I got off the phone because that was my boss and I had a job but that was the day I said yeah let me go on and put this to <laughs> 
And they offer like, you sure, you sure, you sure. And that was the day I just went hard. Home sale by Shea. Mm-hmm. And I and when I got back into real estate, I worked for Keller Williams, which is more oh, of a yeah. large chain brokerage because mm-hmm. they offer a lot of classes. And I have been out of the loop for it. And everything is electronic now. See, back when I started, I was everything, purchase agreements, everything, all documentation done by hand. So I use that as an advantage to like up my knowledge. Like they offer a ton of classes for new agents and stuff. And so I did that. But then I realized I was approached by an agent who has a brokerage downtown that had a boutique brand. And she's like, what are you doing out here in the suburbs? You live downtown. My brokerage is downtown. We're a boutique brand. I can offer you this. And I went there, and it was great. I loved it because I got super familiar with anything going on downtown. It helped me get out of my comfort zone, which doing resale is totally different than new construction. I had the benefit of working with clients that were fast food workers, but then also CEO, where it I prided myself on being able to give that same level of you're buying a home. Like, how can I help you? This is what I know. This is my knowledge. Let me share it with you. Let me help you, especially with that first time buyer. And so I really just loved working for the boutique brand because as a real estate agent, you work for yourself. And so it offers working with the boutique brokerage offers you that freedom to be your own. And then they joined <laughs> I hired, they joined a, a more chain brokerage. So I left and went to work for another boutique brand. <laughs> and it was good. Life is grand. I'm still selling houses. You know, it's a referral based business. So my clients are saying, Shay is great. You should go buy a house. You, Shay. So things are great. But then they also went and work uh, combined forces with a higher chain. Mm-hmm. And then word on the street was Shay was looking to work. With the more boutique brand, and and that's how I met David. Wow. <laughs> wow. And that's how I met yeah. David, and we've been working together since the winter 2020, and that's what brings me here. Yeah. I think it was really just great for my alignment of values. You know, we spent a lot of time with the Fitzgerald neighborhood mm-hmm. and North End. You know, working with folks who this 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 is the hugest purchase of their lives. Exactly, it's only it's a hundred thousand dollars. Not a huge commission, even for houses. Even us. if it's fifty thousand dollars, that's I mean to that yeah. buyer, that's, that's huge. huge. Absolutely. And so that that same level of service and professionalism mm-hmm. that you get mm-hmm. for you know a million dollar condo, a five thousand dollar house, you need that same for mm-hmm. for the folks that are even though the money is less, this is still the number one priority. I love mm-hmm. it. Absolutely. And so with Prep Realty, you know it's black owned. Uh, real estate brokerage based in downtown Detroit. I mean, that's what we're focused on. We, we want to help everybody, white, black, purple, you know, with a $50,000 house, a million dollar house, really help uh, you kind of build that journey of wealth. Mm-hmm. You know, home buying isn't for everybody. Um, so we also, also offer leasing services, but it's just about delivering a consistent level of uh, high quality customer service. That's uh, right. I agree. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, yeah. that's awesome. So now I saw you on Bargain Block. Mm-hmm. And um, a couple weeks ago, I didn't see you. I was like, is this i was just the internet went wild i actually you know people i was i was actually went on twitter we were like what (laughs) (laughs) we just it was disturbing because you are so much the personality of that show you know and you really just make it fun to watch and so i didn't know i did you're always you know you're beautiful you're fun but then you weren't there and it was like what is happening here and so 
you know, I, I but I do have a couple questions mm-hmm. about that, right? Mm-hmm. So as I'm listening to Century Partners talk about their work and they're on Atkinson and they're buying up all the houses they can and fixing them all up, I'm thinking, wow, is this the original bargain block? Mm-hmm. <laughs> is this the original mm-hmm. um, plan for developers to come here? And why don't you have your own HGTV show? <laughs> that would be so... Sp- I'm telling you. He's a filmmaker. Yes, you're a filmmaker. I need you all to have a show. I'm not saying take you... You can do both, right? And I, <laughs> I'm not your agent, and I, I can't negotiate I your contract. One episode. Back right? back like I'm, not, I'm not your agent, but I'm just saying that we really... Bargain Block, I never watched anything on HGTV nothing and my sister called me and she said Donnie you have to watch Bargain Block you will love it I was like girl no I won't but I tried sometimes I listened to her so I watched <laughs> it and I was hooked mm-hmm. I was like I love watching home rehab shows so I've watched all the shows <laughs> on, on HGTV and I only saw one show um, with a black couple or black people involved mm-hmm. in the development and it impacts your psyche you talk about the mm-hmm. psyche of a person even if it doesn't go on there the psyche of seeing people who look like you doing it, and the reason you work so well, aside from all of your other qualities of bargain block, is you're relatable. Thank you. Like and I, I get that a lot. It's I'm always amazed when people say, I'm watching you from Ontario. I'm in San Diego. Like, we love you in Mexico. I'm like, it's, I still, like, right now I'm getting lightheaded just, like, saying this, because it's a lot. It's a lot, but that's one of my, like, the one that hits close is when someone says it's just all about the representation. And that one week I was gone, it caused mass. Like, I told them that, you know, <laughs> mass hysteria will ensue. And no, I just. They should have, they should you know, warning. <laughs> yeah, it Shay was is not here today. Should we got here first? I, I was like, did they fire like, Shay? HGTV issued a statement over little old me. I'm like, they had to because people were like, Freaking out. But what it was, was the guys were working with that agent before they met me. So that was the pilot that they shot when production found them. They shot that. So I'm thinking because they shot it, they just had to. They said, you know what, we're going to hook them with Shay and then we'll drop this. (laughs) And I don't want to be disrespectful to the other lady. She was just fine. She's just not you. Okay, so I was just like not happy with it. And I actually read the article and I read the disclaimer because, you know, now that I'm an HGTV fan, (laughs) I feel like I have, you know, the right to an opinion about this. But as I was thinking about you coming here and learning that you were part of this, you know, this group, Mm -hmm. I'm thinking, why don't we have, and I'm serious, would you be willing to consider doing a show (laughs) in Detroit to let people know what you're doing and let people see how you do the work? Tell the story, Andrew. Absolutely. I think the, um, that's part of the reason we wanted to bring, uh, Shay here and we wanted to talk about is that we do have some ideas and some plans to put forward a show that with Shay is the lead talking about her journey and also the work she's doing and the work that our team with her are doing to to help revitalize Detroit. And I think there's a lot of, it's just important because of Detroit's history, because of its cultural place in the zeitgeist, that it be represented appropriately. And I think the the people have spoken, and I think Shay is a person that can help represent that to the broader public, the actual positive, the true Detroit grit, the, the true narrative of the Detroiter that I don't think a lot of people necessarily get. And I, and I, I definitely mm-hmm. think that's something that Dave and I are really excited about oh. trying to develop and oh. working with Shay to make happen. Well, so. anything I, that, that we can do to help you out, but I want to go back to an earlier conversation 
And that is, I really do hope you find a community development organization partner to um, do that because um, we really took a beating in terms of um, having our work devalued. And even as people are looking at bringing in money for all of this kind of stuff, there is a role for everybody. But the CDO is the organization that does the housing development work, knowing you're not going to make any kind of profit off of it, just praying you break even, okay? But that's the the same thing with Keith and Nevin. They're experiencing that because even though they're pricing these homes for under $100,000, what you don't see is once these appraisals come back, ten dollars and $15,000 less because they're in black neighborhoods, we had they we have buyers it's wanting to pay eighty thousand dollars for this gorgeous home, but then if the appraisal comes in at sixty nine thousand, they already are making no money. But once thing. the appraisal comes back, that small profit that they do have the possibility of making, what are they going to say? Well, no, no, mom and two kids, you can't buy this house. No, they're going to say, okay, we'll take well, sixty nine thousand. You know, so it's just that it, appraisal issue is real I, I i get that and i appreciate them and you know and the difference between them and all of the cdo executive directors is we don't sleep in houses that we are developing i was so happy that at the end of the season they <laughs> bought they a house. house i was like oh thank you jesus if i see that shopping cart I go down watch the show. i haven't seen the street show. Yeah, if i see that shopping good. cart it's like you know i would yeah. say andrew so the first house we bought Andrew, you slept Esbury there? Rehab Absolutely. House. I slept in Esbury Rehab. Did you? Did I you? wanted to do the God work myself. You. David wouldn't let me. Did you, did you walk down the street oh with goodness. a shopping cart? Because, see, if you walk down the street with a shopping cart, I don't want to be offensive or anything, but people might think you're homeless. That's what no, I'm saying. I can't it do would that. Not, this is this it would not be the no, same. No, but no, yeah. but here, there would be no cameras either. So. But you want, but you want to know the other thing that I'm thinking about that's also cool, especially if you guys scale this and you know create a story and share your positioning and where you are. I think uh, this is something that Detroit needs to see, right? And to also know that we live, we are now living amongst folks who ain't trying to leave, get successful and leave us. Like you're still here. Mm-hmm. Right. You have reached a pinnacle of success that people rarely see. And we get to live amongst one of our heroes and one of the people who represent us well. And and and, and even in David and Andrew, like you, you, you guys are here to stay like nowhere. Right. And so I think that, you know, with all of the good, with all of the success and especially when you guys figure out how to tell the story, I think, you know, the pride that you already have experienced will will grow and people will, you know, continue to continue to check in and on ramp to some of this work that you guys are doing. I, I think it's it's good. It's good work. Yeah. So I want to commend you, um, Century Partners, for weathering the storm. Thank you. I want to commend you because I know you, they, you hit a storm, but yeah. your model transcended what happened with Fitzgerald and you're still at it. You're and still I'm here. sure you've grown and stuff like that. So I want to commend you. I want to really commend you, Shay, just for your tenacity and just yeah. making it happen and being a you know strong independent woman. She said she come worked on, the line. Come on, Virgo. I don't get no more Detroit than that. Right. Absolutely. And the same thing that yesterday deep. year, my house caught fire. I lost my home. I lost everything I own. Like, I've had some, these last yeah. few years, I'm just now getting off the struggle bus yeah. when I put up outside right here. But life has been, <laughs> been some, like, oh, yeah. really, yeah. like, every day I'm like, what did I do? I'm not going to cry because I probably will. But you know that's so many Detroiters stories though, Shay. Because I'm like, what did I do? Like, mm-hmm. I know, like when no one is looking, I make sure I'm still a good person. But like, life is like hard for people growing up in the city, and to like, yeah, 
Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and look at you now, and that is well, going back to what David said. That some young lady is looking at you, and that's the and it's really... so important that you tell that story, mm-hmm. right? Because everybody wants to tell the story of how I'm so successful, exactly. And I, but but people need to know the story about before you became who you are. That's one of the reasons why I love seventeen our years in friend the and reporter Cat I mean, Stafford because Cat mm. talks about before she became a uh, nationally became recognized. You know, reporter on the east side, right on, on the east side, and you know, in high school, she dealt with her stuff. So, thank you for being um, transparent about that. Mm-hmm. I think that all of you are just doing awesome work, and we need to see more of it. And um, we just need to partner with you in whatever kind of way. And I don't say ECN; I mean the community development. And as you go into a neighborhood, just pull in, knock on the door of the community development organization, and lift them because we're really all in it together. Detroit is a working class city for the most part. Mm-hmm. We've got a lot of smart people, a lot of professional people, working class city. And we have been through hell. We went through emergency management. You read about it. Reading about it and living it are two different things. Bankruptcy, reading about it and living it are two different things. The violation will never go away. The no, trauma. The trauma will never go away. And you see that showing up in so many ways. But we, we welcome you here. Thank you for what you do, um, and I'm so glad that you came on our show. This was exciting for us. That you are um, really thinking about doing. I thought it was my idea, but um, and that you got to correct the record, right? You know, <laughs> it's oftentimes you know I said it before. You, you guys are often in the news without a quote from either of you, right? There's somebody you know writing about it, and so I think an opportunity for you guys to correct the record and. Uh, tell us the story of your journey as well as that 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 project that sore spot on the west side is is valuable and i think people you know can rock with that and i think it's inappropriate um that article that linked you with the herman keeper project was just completely wrong Yeah. yeah you guys are not laying claim you are not trying to lock people out you don't have people knocking on the door saying we're trying to fix up these houses. You created value. I think five years from now you're going to see the fruit of your investment of time because some of these things just take time. But it's turning around the neighborhood is making a transition, and it was not an easy neighborhood to go into. That's the other thing. The history of the neighborhood is yeah. it was not one of those five-year turnaround neighborhoods because of so many factors. But I do think that you're going to see that fruit of the investment. And it's not fair to, as a Dennis Castellanos, to compare you to somebody where the residents in the neighborhood are actually feeling right now today locked out of opportunity where they live. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's yeah. a real thing. So thank you guys for coming on. We really thank appreciate you. it. Listen, if you have topics that you want us to discuss on the podcast, you can hit us up on our socials or you can email us. It's time for shout outs. I want to shout out uh, JG and Audio Wave Network Studios. We are way over time and JG over there. Hey. <laughs> It's going to take Don and I some time to get used to the new sound effects. We didn't have that before. Uh, We want to uh, shout out uh, all of the events coming up for Juneteenth. This is uh, the week headed into Juneteenth. The Senate just unanimously passed a bill to make Juneteenth a national holiday um, today. That came out today. Uh, ECN is having a Juneteenth event. You want to talk talk about it? um, We're having a Juneteenth event. The Honorable Joanne Watson is going to come here and talk about black history and related to environmental health. We have Senator Stephanie Chang, Congressman 
Rashida Tlaib and our focus of our event is between the plant and the people because when you were in the parking lot, I'm sure you saw the expansion of Fiat Chrysler, which right, um, behind. right behind, and we have some air quality issues that we're still asking them to address because it is a climate health issue. Every time you look at the discrepancy between how black people deal with things like COVID-19, um, you have to look at the fact that we start from a lower respiratory health issue because of the pollution that's happening in our environment. So we're going to have a speak out about that, but we're also going to have our elders come in a circle. We're going to have an amazing taste of the diaspora box lunch from Edric Gudia. Um, Edric. I, I say Edric name, Goudet. Edric Gudet. Well, Edric Gudet. I love Edric Gudet, and she's on my board. I apologize, Edric. <laughs> I get your name, and then I misspell. Anyway, she's. It's we're, we're going to have amazing box lunches from her um, free. We're going to have vaccine clinics here, a little comedy. It's going to be a little bit for everybody. We're going to have activities for children, celebrating our freedom, but also making a demand for clean air and social justice. And Donna, Professor. Uh, Donna Gibbons-Davidson, you'll also be giving a keynote uh, with uh, Healing Between the Lines, a segment of the Wayne State Medical School, right? Yes, I'll be talking about the history of medical racism or healthcare racism and opportunities to solve that. Um, and it's important to me. Um, when my grandfather moved here in the 1920s, he studied under Dr. Sweet. Mm. he's a doctor who graduated from the university of indiana moved to detroit because detroit had people who could pay for health care <laughs> so um, he joined a tradition there were so many black doctors and so many black hospitals in detroit black health care was a thing right Absolutely. yeah and um yes well there were seven black hospitals seven at one time and mm -hmm. then when i was growing up you had southwest um, general hospital and that a lot of the hospitals merged into one um, and now you have no black hospitals, you have a disappearance of black doctors, and you still have racism in healthcare. And so I'm going to be talking about that and ways that we can close the divide um, so that people, our people, trust in healthcare and are willing to do things like get vaccines. Yeah. Shout out once again to Taste of the Diaspora. They're hosting an event at Marigrove Conservancy. Uh, they're having a watch party with High on the Hog. I don't know if you guys are familiar with the Netflix new docuseries. Um, there's going to be a watch party event and a discussion that I will be moderating afterwards. So I'll be uh, in Marygrove Conservancy for Juneteenth this uh, sat this Saturday at uh, 7 o'clock. So come and join me. It's going to be a really, really great discussion around how African-American cuisine invented American cuisine, right? Black cuisine. And so I'm excited about that. Excited to partner with Edric Goudet on that. Uh, Saturday is also Emmy night. So... Uh, after Saturday, hopefully we will be able to say Emmy Award winning Orlando Bailey. Orlando Bailey. So we will yes. see that. Yes, I know, right? <laughs> I'm excited. I'm, I'm super excited for you. Um, yeah. I also want to shout out uh, Maggie DeSantis today. Yeah. Today we had an important day. Um, when I joined ECN in 2016, Maggie started an initiative called Building the Engine for Community Development in Detroit. And today she passed the torch. And Building the Engine of Community Development... Detroit is being integrated into the work of um, CDAD, Community in Detroit. Um, it's a hard thing to pass the torch, and um, I think that our community has done a great job once again building up community development organizations. Um, I'm a proud community development organization leader. I believe we are essential to the lifeblood of any community, and so congratulations, Maggie, for her work in starting this organization and oh, starting. The building community, I said, Meg, you just, in, in my watch, you've, you've passed the torch twice. Twice. And um, left 
the community better for it. Yeah. So thank y'all so much for sticking it out with us. We know we're over time, but we were so excited to be back in the studio. We'll see you next week. In the meantime, we want you to catch the wave. See y'all later. Hey!